We are starting off, though, talking more about the BC real estate assessments. They were released, or we talked about it, with BC Assessment on the program yesterday. What does it actually mean, though, for real estate agents, for people who are considering buying or selling property? Well, to talk more about that, we are joined by Jesse Klein, a realtor with Sutton Group West Coast Realty. Jesse, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. Well, I was looking at a lot of your reaction to the BC assessments and the numbers. We were talking about them on the show yesterday. Can you talk a little bit? One tweet that you put out, you said that you showed a house in Langley that's been on the market more than 150 days, listed at 999000 the tax-assessed value $1.25 million, and then you wrote RIP to every realtor in a listing appointment telling the seller their home is worth a quarter million less than the government says. Can you talk a little bit more about that yeah uh so yeah that was a property i was showing and the assessment you know it's not uncommon for an assessment to be off maybe a hundred thousand dollars on a million dollar home and so when we're talking with sellers they can understand that maybe the assessment doesn't factor in that the interior condition isn't very good in the home or maybe it's on a busy road or something like that and it didn't factor it in but because our market was so volatile this year um i'm finding the bc assessments just a little more inaccurate and then plus a lot of the price declines happened after July, which was the date the BC assessments are dated for. So it, it can be off by up to a quarter million, like 20% on a property. So as a realtor, when you walk into a seller's home and they're asking for an opinion on the value and they want to sell it, it can be quite the shock when they got this letter in the mail and now you're telling them it's worth you know a quarter million less than what the government says, when usually those are you know fairly accurate and homeowners know that. So it can be, uh, it definitely makes our job a little more difficult. Right, because then is somebody looking at that and saying, well, what do you mean we're listing it at less than a million dollars? Look at my assessment, it's this much, but not making that connection that that is the assessment from July? Exactly. And uh, and not only that, but um, even, the, even some of the values from July, the BC assessments, because the market was so volatile, I'm finding that, you know, I even sold my own personal home in July, and being a realtor, you know, I didn't, I didn't undersell my home. I don't think I know values pretty well. And I actually ended up selling my own personal home for 120,000 less than what the assessment just came in at, which is supposed to be July one. And my contract date was like July 12th. So even that, you can see that there's here. That's not OBC assessment. They've got a lot of properties to assess. It's not on them. They've got a huge job, and I think they do a fairly good job with how much uh, work they have to do. But it's just it was such a volatile year that. Values are going to be a little bit all over the place, I'm finding. And does it change when we're talking about different areas in that we certainly saw bigger assessed values or bigger jumps in places like Langley, Hope, kind of moving or Fraser Valley and and out more than looking in downtown Vancouver. So what do those numbers or or how do you kind of read those numbers? Yeah, the close city of Vancouver, I'm finding the more accurate assessments are this year. Um, areas like Langley, uh, they seem to be off by, on aggregate, um, I would say like 5 to 10%. Uh, the assessment's overshot a little bit. And then once you get to Abbotsford, it's even more than that. Um, I just sold a house in Abbotsford for eight ninety nine that was assessed at $1,050,000. Um, and then, yeah, same with Chilliwack, Hope, Mission as well. Uh, just because these areas went up so much, like some houses, houses, detached houses were up 100% in 24 months earlier this year, like they doubled. And so they're coming down a lot faster as well. Whereas the city of Vancouver, a lot of properties are still worth the same they were back in 2018. 
Um, and so they just aren't coming down as much. They're a little more stable. And so the assessment values are, are just more, st- they're closer to what the actual market value is. It's a little more stable out there. Uh, so what does that do then for people like yourself selling houses when you've got that disconnect uh, with some of the sellers and, and what are buyers expecting then as well? Are they expecting those prices to really drop a lot? Yeah, I think that buyers and sellers, they're always trying to look for, I guess, the most reliable way to determine a property's value. Um, so ideally, um, you've got a competent real estate agent who you trust and you can actually rely on their opinion and they do a good job for you in showing you the active listings in the area and what properties are actually selling for in the last month or two. And then that will help you determine like, and you know, the thing is a buyer will go out there, they'll look at, let's say five or 10 houses in the same neighborhood and they'll know who's kind of offering the best product for the price. And so the BC assessment, like it means something, but at the end of the day, you're kind of comparison shopping and determining your own value in that sense. And and sellers know their houses, if their neighbor's house is listed at, you know, 999, one at 125, but, you know, their neighbor's the same square footage and they have a renovated kitchen. Well, it's kind of, at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, people might, they might kind of try, but they're going to end up conceding and realizing, okay, the market's a lot softer than what the BC assessment's indicating. Right. Do we rely too much, do you think, on those numbers from BC assessment? You know, I think that buyers and sellers probably do, but I understand it in the sense of like, if you don't have a, a trustworthy source, like an agent, or you don't want to pay for an appraisal, um, then you're kind of looking for your own indications of value. And the government does, you know, their own free assessments. People do rely on that. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely does throw a bit of a bit of a wedge into things that sometimes it can be a little bit difficult dealing with that. I saw as well that you had put out uh, on, on social media about mortgages and and saying if there's anybody out there that's locked into a, a 10-year fixed rate, uh, 2.1, if you locked in in 2020, wow, what a, what a great thing to do. And that tweet also yeah. got a lot of, of response. Uh, how do you think that's going to play out as far as the shift in, in mortgage rates and interest rates and what we're going to be looking at for 2023? Yeah, I think as long as our mortgage rates stay above 4%, um, I don't really see our market picking up from here. Uh, our, our prices just, they can't really support that. Even back in 2018, you know, our mortgage rates went up to about 35 3.7%, and our, our market slowed considerably. Prices went down about 10% in 2018. So now we're looking at, you know, around 5% right now, and some mortgages in the low fours, but uh, I think unless we get below that 4% mark, I don't think we're going to see much of a pickup this year. Um, and so it's all just on that. And of course that all depends on inflation. So that's uh, that's the number to watch. And I would imagine too, does that make it difficult even for people that maybe were thinking of making a move? Are they more hesitant now in that you don't want to lose that rate that you may be locked into in 2020 or 2021 and concerned or even concerned about, say, a five-year mortgage maturing? Yeah. What's interesting is a lot of banks allow mortgage ports. Uh, People can actually take their low rates. And I've had quite a few clients do that this year. And if you're upsizing, you take your mortgage and maybe you blend it with an extra hundred or two hundred thousand dollars at the new rate, but you get to keep your old rate for your previous mortgage balance. Uh, what's interesting is the USA doesn't have that, so they're, they're, they, a lot of people don't want to move in the states because they they can't uh, keep their mortgage then. But in Canada, people most people can port their their current rate, which is good. But uh, yeah, we've got more and more renewals coming up every day, obviously, as people reach the end of their terms. 
And that's been quite the shock. Um, for the average person, the payment's probably going off about 30% if you renewed, you know, five years ago. So, or if you first got your mortgage five years ago. All right. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. It was great to get your perspective on the numbers and where we're at when it comes to real estate. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. It's great talking with you too. Well, we keep hearing about shortages when it comes to cold and flu medication, and that is certainly something that is in demand as we continue in the cold and flu season. We wanted to talk a little bit more about this and see if there is any advice to parents and other adults who are looking for this. And Anna Wolak, who is a family physician and an assistant professor at UBC, is joining us now. Dr. Wolak, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. How uh, how much of a problem or an issue is this at this point, or what are you hearing about these shortages of cold and flu medication? So this has been happening for a while. I've been seeing it since the summer where shelves have been gradually decreasing in stock to the point that maybe about November, December, the shelves were completely bare um, of adults and kids cold and flu medications and you know we know all about the acetaminophen and paris and ibuprofen for for kids um so i'm also hearing more and more people telling me both you know as my patients and socially a lot more people are are getting sick we we this is our first winter without any of the protections that we've had over the last two years. So viruses are transmitting like crazy and and people are are getting sick. And the usual over-the-counter remedies that they used to rely on, I mean, even lozenges, people are having a hard time finding finding their usual lozenges. So it's it's starting to, to become more of an inconvenience, more of a problem for people. And do we know why it's continuing this way, whereas in the United States, other countries seem to not have the same problem or the same shortages that we're seeing on Canadian shelves? I suspect a lot of this is a supply and demand sort of thing that has been, that's been affecting us on all sorts of uh, goods. But the supply and demand problem when it comes to these medications, we know that We've had this problem with acetaminophen and ibuprofen, and it is happening in the U.S. now with um, children's ibuprofen and acetaminophen. So it may be just that it's coming down the chain. So we have the supply problem, but there's also the demand, and we can't necessarily control supply. Things will come when they come, but what we need to look at is controlling our demand. And how do you control demand for symptomatic cold and flu medications is essentially to stop transmission of of these viruses. I do want to add that one of the things is that these cold and flu medications are more for symptom relief rather than actually treating anything. So people can also tend to, there are some home remedies that people tend to rely on, like a lot of chicken soup, for example, and making sure they stay hydrated. But the the supply and demand balance, we need to make sure that we're reducing transmission of illnesses. We now have a new COVID variant, subvariant that is circulating. We are still in the midst of respiratory virus season, so we do have a few months to go. Right, and that's a good reminder. When we talk about, though, the, the medications, and like you said, it's symptom relief, but it is something as well, whether it's bringing a fever down or, or getting relief from those symptoms that, that people have come to rely on. What do you tell parents or, or adults looking for this uh, if they're simply not able to find those medications? 
So a lot of things are um, after evaluation with your healthcare providers. So things like for cough, if it's appropriate, you could try using things like honey for congestion to try to, you know, steam the area and try to to use nasal sprays, saline nasal sprays to try to clear the congestion. Those sorts of things. So we try to... And and a lot of this is there are a lot of general things, but there are also very specific things that will need to be discussed with your own practitioner. But things like definitely staying hydrated. And like I said, there's there is some there is some value in old school chicken soup. And every culture has chicken soup that's used when when you're sick. And there are studies that have shown that actual chicken soup can decrease um, congestion and can make you feel better. So. There is some value to that. So it's a lot of home remedies that unfortunately or otherwise people will need to to look back on and and rely on rather than relying on what's on the shelf. All right. Uh, Do you think, too, when you talk about the fact there are so many viruses flying around and we're seeing people, whether it's getting sick with a cold or with flu or with other respiratory viruses, is that also because we spent so much time masked and we spent time staying away from people that were uh, that people are a bit more vulnerable or that they just don't have the immunity so we're actually seeing more and more studies debunking that thought especially since we did have a flu and an rsv wave not the flu sorry we did have an rsv wave for example last year and we did see um cold and flu virus cold viruses going up a bit last year though not to this extent what we're actually seeing more now is the fact that we are not masking and we are shoulder to shoulder we're not social distancing anymore and so it's easier for viruses to transmit the theory of immunity death as a lot of people had been referring it to it, to it initially, is gradually being discounted by a lot of scientific papers that are coming out. Okay. So, so what is your advice then? And I know that you had posted about taking those measures or those safety measures, and it really has, at least it feels like we've gone into the part of this where it's become an individual choice and, and, and people are kind of figuring out their own comfort level. What is your advice then about people who maybe are uncomfortable or trying to figure that out? So first of all is, um, you know, when you're feel- feeling ill, of course, seek medical advice from your own healthcare professional. But like I said, we need to start looking at decreasing our demand. And so decreasing virus, uh, decreasing getting infected and decreasing virus transmission. So make sure you get vaccinated to the maximum ability that you are able to for COVID. Make sure you're getting your flu shot and staying home if you're sick. All the layers of protection that we know about. Wearing a mask in indoor public spaces when you don't know if people are infectious, when you don't know what other people's um, vaccination status are, will be and making sure things are well ventilated and, you know, cleaning the air. Those are measures that regardless of what virus is circulating, those the, the cleaning the air and wearing masks, those are the best way to reduce transmission of any respiratory virus. And what about the type of mask? And I know we, it now feels like we've been having this conversation for years, and I think we, we have I been. We have. <laughs> but I, I had someone say to me just the other day, saying, look, I keep seeing people with cloth masks. I don't think they do anything. What's the point of that? 
So we moved past. So cloth masks were brought in in the beginning because there was a shortage of all the other masks and we wanted something. But now the recommendation is an N95 respirator or equivalent, things that that are well fitted and the actual material does have a static electricity component that helps trap the viruses. But if you can't get that, then a surgical mask, as long as it's well fitted, we worry about the gaps because if you have a gappy mask, then you're letting viruses and air in anyway. Cloth masks are not ideal, um, it, but for some people, they use it to cover a surgical mask because that helps fit it, fit it a bit better if you can't get an N95. So cloth masks are the in the hierarchy of masks. They're the least um, useful. But if, let's say, there really isn't anything that you can use, there may be a place because it still will reduce physical transmission and have a barrier there. But ideally, we should be in well-fitted masks, hopefully N95s are equivalent. And for people that, that are done with that and uh, are kind of not wearing masks and knowing that, that with that, there is going to be perhaps an increased risk of transmission, is that something that, we, again, people, that's the comfort level that people have agreed to and that's kind of where we're at with this thing? Yeah, so I don't know. So, so until messaging comes from, from the government, for example, whether there would be more masks required. It's it, people are now choosing where wh- to wear masks and where to wear their masks. It's it would be nice if people were wearing masks in essential areas, for example, like public transit, where people have to be. So people who don't have a choice as to where wearing a mask or not. One thing there is a mask mandate though is hospitals and healthcare settings. So doctors' offices and hospitals, there is still a mask mandate there because we want to protect our most vulnerable. But um, the the when it comes to people choosing their masks, uh, choosing whether to wear masks or not, if they choose not to wear a mask, at least please think of yourself and others and. You know, making sure you're staying home when you're if you are symptomatic, if you have any sickness and, you know, covering your mouth when you cough and washing your hands after you cough into your hands, those sorts of things, just to try to minimize the transmission and being aware of everybody around you who may or may not have the same level of immune, immune competence that you have. All right. Dr. Anna Wolak, thank you, as always, for coming on the show. Appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Well, you do not need to be a 911 call taker to know that it can be a very stressful job and put into the mix a bunch of calls that are not actually emergencies. The stress levels can be even higher. Every year, Ecom releases the list of the top 10 nuisance calls. This year, there are some doozies on that list. And joining me to talk more about it is Kayla Butler, communications manager with Ecom 911. Kayla, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having us, Jill. Every year we have this list, we see this list. I know every year uh, many people shake their heads and wonder how this keeps happening. But let's go through the top 10 nuisance calls of 2022. What uh, are some of the calls that were on that list? Absolutely. So, of course, topping the list this year, we have um, someone that called in because the nozzle wasn't working 
at the gas station. So, you know, they paid for their gas, they went to pump it. Unfortunately, nothing's coming out. Very, very frustrating, Jill, I can only imagine. But of course, that is not an emergency situation. That's not a reason to dial 911. You know, hang on to your receipt, call the phone number that's on at the gas pump itself, or, or of course, can, go ahead and make that consumer complaint after the fact, but please don't dial 911. That is not a concern that the police can help you out with. Um, some other calls that we had on the list this year, you know, having a flat tire, um, people playing basketball in a public court at nighttime, that of course, you know, if it's a noise concern can be directed to the bylaw office. Um, someone wasn't picking up after their dog. Lots of the calls on the list this year, Jill, have much more appropriate resources that people can turn to. They're going to get help faster, of course, because they're not dialing 911 and then being redirected. And of course, they are not taking up those critical emergency resources from people who could be in life or death situations. And looking at those calls and those ones that you just outlined, and people might think that those are the most ridiculous, but this top 10 list goes on. Uh, number five on the list, somebody was using their garbage bin. Was that somebody that called in because somebody was using their bin, say they had a bin outside their home or in the alley and someone called 911? That's right, Jill. And, and of course, certainly not a reason to dial 911. I'm going to stress that a little bit further. That's not even a reason to call the police on emergency lines. Unfortunately, the police aren't going to be able to help in this situation. But a really appropriate resource for that is, again, to dial your city bylaw office. Reach out to them if they have an online reporting tool. Uh, if you're located in the city of Vancouver, either your business or residential, of course, you can dial 311. Um, one thing that we're really noticing a lot, Jill, it's becoming increasingly concerning is the amount of people that are dialing 911, whether it be from this top 10 list or, or other calls, and right off the gate, they're saying, hey, I know this isn't an emergency, but, and mm -hmm. it's very clear, Jill, that in a lot of these situations, people know they need help, and they just don't know where to call. So there is a really fantastic list of alternative resources on ecom's website, that's nonemergency.ca, that'll outline some really fantastic, appropriate places to call in a lot of these situations where you know you need help, but the police are simply not the best resource for you. Right, and that's also kind of concerning, isn't it? That if somebody's starting the call saying, hey, I know it's not an emergency, but they've not obviously taken the time to find those other numbers. Maybe they couldn't find those other numbers. But what are the concerns then when somebody is doing that and taking up that time with a call taker at the ecom center? Absolutely, and, and it's important to recognize that ecom handles 99% of the province's 911 calls. So if our call takers are answering, you know, even 1%, of the 2.1 million calls that we answered last year are nuisance calls or, or inappropriate reasons to dial 911. That is a lot of critical resources that are being diverted from people who are facing life or death situations. They're critically ill, they're critically injured, there's a crime in progress. It's taking away resources from those people experiencing those true emergencies uh, and it's taking away our ability to help them as quickly as possible. So again, really critical that people keep these 911 call lines free if you're experiencing a life or death emergency, a crime in process, the really big key factor to remember is, do you need immediate response? And that's immediate response from police, fire, or ambulance. If there's a time delay and it is a police matter, then certainly look at deferring to either online crime reporting or the non-emergency lines. And like we've chatted about quite a bit, sometimes it's not even a police matter and, and maybe an appropriate resource is, is better found on that non-emergency website.
And what about when somebody calls in, and I'll use another example uh, from the list. So number 10 on the list of calls that are not emergency calls was someone cut in line at a car wash. So if a call taker gets that call, they do have to take it seriously, don't they, in that maybe somebody's in a dangerous situation, maybe somebody's trying to get attention and they're saying this in a way. They do have to take it seriously until they prove it's not, don't they? Absolutely. Our call takers are trained inside and out. You have to treat every single call like it is a genuine emergency until you've taken the time to determine that it is not. And it can be as simple as asking a couple of questions. Are you safe? Is anybody telling you what to say? Uh, but to your point, Jill, I think we all are familiar with, you know, the, the pepperoni pizza story where a caller in, I believe it was in the U.S., called in, you know, pretending to order a pepperoni pizza. And, and the call taker, who, of course, is well-trained, started to pick up on some of those cues. Our call takers have very much the same training. They're listening to background noises. They're asking those questions. If somebody calls in and says, hey, someone cut in line at the car wash, our call taker is starting to think, okay, is there something else here? And that's part of why these calls to 911, when they aren't emergency situations, are so detrimental because you're taking that time and space. The call taker has to spend that time with you to check in, make sure that you're okay before they can let you go and move on to that next potentially life or death emergency call. Are there any repercussions then when it's deemed that, yes, this is somebody legitimately calling because they had a flat tire or one of the other calls, uh, they're complaining that children were drawing with chalk at a playground. When the call taker is sure that it's not something more dangerous or it's not something more serious, what happens at that point? Do they explain to the person on the line, this is not an emergency, here's why you shouldn't call? Or is there, there any, uh, what else happens at that point? So at that point, Jill, our call takers, their biggest priority is moving on to that next 911 call that could be that life or death situation. So yes, of course, a quick explanation of, you know, this isn't an appropriate reason to dial 911. Um, if it is a police situation, of course, the, the call taker will advise, you know, please disconnect and call back on the non-emergency lines um, or, you know, call bylaws or what have you. But getting that caller off the line as quickly as possible, once they have determined, of course, that it's not an emergency, that's the very first step and, and will always be the primary job of an e-com call taker. From my perspective, of course, my job is to have these conversations with people like yourself and spread this public education so that the general public really do know what 911 lines are for, what non-emergency lines are for, and then of course if you need help and you just don't know where to go, uh, what are those alternative resources that you can turn to? All right. And uh, Kayla, I wanted to ask you as well, the number of calls that came into 911 in all of 2022, more than 2 million calls, a very, very busy year. Is that a record? And were the number of nuisance calls, do you know if that number was up as well? So that is, I, you know, we hate to say record-breaking or anything like that because, of course, that, that means that more people are having emergencies every year, but it is a, a bigger number of calls, two point, more than 2.1 million, uh, about 2%, just under 2% more than we answered last year. So, yes, it is more calls than, than we have answered in the past. Uh, we don't keep record of how many nuisance calls we handle because that means an extra step for the call taker to process and record that call type. Uh, but what I can say is 
every call taker that works at Ecom knows what these calls are like. They answer, you know, at least a couple of them every single day, every single shift that they're working. So I really do want to take a moment to acknowledge our call takers who are such profound professionals and as frustrating as answering a call like this can be, every single one is treated like an emergency and with the utmost professionality. And I just wanted to take a moment to call that out as well. Oh, absolutely. It uh, can't be an easy job. And uh, like you said, they're, they're highly trained and are dealing with this all the time. Kayla, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you again for having us. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday. Well, joining me now is City Columnist for the Vancouver Sun and Province, Dan Fumano, to talk about a new park and playground. Dan, thank you so much for making some time for us. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, I love the the title of this, Making Vancouver Playgrounds a Little Less Safe for the Kids' Sake. Tell me a little bit about the article and what kind of prompted you to take a look at this. Well... Uh, the sort of the thrust of the article is that there's this um, body of research, international body of research from researchers around the world who study children's health and uh, children's play. And they've suggested that um, over the years, uh, risk averse governments tried to make playgrounds safer and safer, which of course is understandable. No one wants kids to get hurt. And, you know, governments don't want to get sued if kids get hurt. But there's this body of research suggesting that by making the playgrounds too safe, uh, that actually has some drawbacks because it was making the playgrounds and play spaces uh, boring, uh, effectively, or just um, they didn't have the same benefits that kids get from playing on challenging or what the researchers call risky play. If there's some level of perceived risk, um, if children are sort of trying to overcome obstacles, and there's obviously, you don't want it to be actually dangerous. Uh, you don't want kids getting seriously hurt or maimed on playgrounds. But if there's some level of perceived risk or challenge, then that helps kids with their development and helps them become more resilient. Um, so that was kind of what the article was about. And it was sort of trying to summarize this um, you know, research, including there are some local researchers who are experts in this area. Right. So kind of finding that balance, I guess, because anybody uh, of a certain age will likely remember playgrounds when they were little. Uh, I remember the merry-go-round, yeah. which sent at yeah. least one kid to hospital with a broken leg every yeah. few months. Certainly, yeah. we don't want to go back to that. But I know you took your family to one of the newest parks in Vancouver, yeah. which, is, which is very different from that. But is that where you kind of saw as well that this different or this this swing to the more safe playground? Yeah, exactly. And that was kind of what sort of I, I had heard about this concept about risky play and about how uh, playground about how experts were sort of trying to urge, uh, trying to encourage play opportunities that had this perceived risk and these obstacles and stuff. I'd heard about it. Um, but then, yeah, for we, what sort of brought it home for me was when I brought my own uh, twin toddlers to this new park in downtown Vancouver um, and saw them running around, and as well as a bunch of older kids, kids of a really wide range of ages, all playing on this playground. Um, and it's a it's a quite a new park downtown, um, and it uh, it was just yeah, it was really interesting to see, and it, it and it had a lot of very challenging looking uh, 
um, elements to it and all kinds of uh, new elements, the different things that we haven't really seen in playgrounds before. And it seems to be very popular with the kids. And and things like and some of the photos show climbing on ropes and kind of mesh ropes mm-hmm. and things. And is that the kind of, of risk, whereas there's not a chance that a child's going to fall through those ropes, but there's still that challenge of, of climbing and being off the ground by a meter or so. And is that the kind of thing that balances out so it's still safe, but still has that challenge and risk involved in it? I think so. I mean, I, I, obviously, I'm not an expert in, in the design of these parks, but that is what... Um, I think that those are the kinds of uh, features that um, the experts are advocating for. And I spoke with a senior landscape architect from the Vancouver Park Board who said that, you know, obviously they're quite proud of the work of this playground and they had worked with um, some design uh, firms to put it together and they wanted to make sure that, you know, the parks aren't boring. Um, and and I spoke with as well. I spoke with an, a researcher from UBC, uh, Professor Susan Harrington, who's an expert on you know she researches and helps design play areas for children. And when I was you know when I started working on this column, I was thinking about this park in particular because I had brought my kids there and seen them and the other kids running around. But when I was speaking with Professor Harrington, she you know without prompting brought up this example in Vancouver, saying that you know there was this concerning trend sort of in the '90s and. Uh, starting a couple decades ago towards making playgrounds really, really safe, making them as safe as possible, possibly to the detriment of kids' activity and development. But she brought up this recent park as, you know, a, a hopeful and encouraging sign um, that playground designers were trying to introduce these elements of perceived risk into playgrounds. Again, she also mentioned a, a playground in Richmond, a public park in Richmond called Terra Nova, that similarly has a lot of kind of challenging, risky play kind of opportunities for kids. Yeah, I liked too one of her quotes in your in your piece too says when she talks about the difference between dangerous and risky and and yeah. making sure that those those two things are are very different. Uh, this park too, I would I would imagine, and you kind of talk about this. It's not as though this is a big expansive space where they can put a grass field and things. So mm-hmm. it was it was also not cheap, but also getting creative. Yeah, definitely. So we, we, yeah, it was not cheap, as you say. I mean, it's um, it cost. I think the total construction was upwards of fifteen million dollars, and then, but that also does include public washrooms on site, which there's a big shortage of in Vancouver. Uh, it also includes an on-site cafe, which is great. There's this wonderful little coffee shop where you can buy sandwiches, coffees, whatever. Um, and then it also involves includes all of this uh, pretty elaborate construction. Um, but as you say, it's not a huge space. It's less than an acre. It's right downtown. Um, the, the park's official name, it's an indigenous name, which, uh, sorry, I'm not able to pronounce offhand. It's kind of cool. It's the first first park in Vancouver to be gifted in, uh, a name from the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Um, but the name means rainbow, so it's also kind of known as Rainbow Park. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty creative because it's not a huge space, so they kind of just went up. So it's quite vertical. There are all these elements, these towers that kids can climb in. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it is worth seeing if, um, if, if you haven't, uh, been by there yet, it's just sort of on the edge of Yale town. And, uh, and, and how did the experts weigh in? Did your kids like it? <laughs> My kids loved it. Well, the biggest problem was when we were trying to leave and we were kind of like, we had to go cause we had to be somewhere else and they really didn't want to leave. So that was one challenge, but I mean, that sounds like a pretty positive, uh, review. No, the kids loved it. And um, and then our, our, our nieces as well. They're older. They're 10 and 7, and they loved it. And our kids are only, you know, they're turning three in a few months. They're, 
Um, and they loved it. And then there were kids of all ranges there. And, and just everybody was very active. It's just, it's, it's a very well-used park because obviously there's a lot of residents in that area. Um, you know, there's like 10, I think the city says there's something like 10,000 residents within a five minute walk of this park and 17,000 people work within a five minute walk of that park, that park. So it's a very dense area. Obviously most people who live around there don't have backyards or access to much private outdoor space. So it's a very, yeah, well, uh, well used park. All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks, Joe.